I must stand by the side of the mountain I must be where I know I must be When you stand and face the gas masks and truncheons You must know what it all really means It is the time of the last persecution And Caesar shall be raised He will ask for his feet To be kissed by your sister And your children will fear at his name Do not avenge these deaths, do not avenge them You must know what it all really means It is the time of the Antichrist to know what I'm saying Make for your own secret place Jason Louv, and this is the Ultra Culture Podcast. We are now in what two months, three months? How long has it been since the beginning of coronavirus? I don't know. I've lost track. I think it's two months, but honestly, the days just blur together. I don't know what day it is. I don't know what the date is. Everything's just murky. What's been on my mind recently is how much we've been thinking ahead to this happening and for so long. There's so much media out there that's obviously about pandemics, zombie apocalypses, the end of America, and so much so that it's almost like everybody knows what to do now that it's kind of already happening. Case in point, I really like video games. Like, I really love video games way too much. And uh, as they just keep getting better and better, I love getting immersed in them. And uh, that's something that I share with today's guest, Johnny Pemberton. We were actually playing uh, some Call of Duty Modern Warfare, the new Modern Warfare, uh, together on PlayStation, which is hilarious. But there's so many video games, for instance, that are about the pandemic end of America. Case in point, uh, I've been replaying The Last of Us, the remastered version for PlayStation, which is all about 
you know, a pandemic that spreads throughout America, turns everyone into zombies and leaves America in shambles. Other examples, Tom Clancy's The Division is about a pandemic that sweeps through New York and uh, leads to a lockdown and ends civilization as we know it. There's probably countless examples of this, whether it's movies, video games, obviously books. The Stand by Stephen King is a classic example. 28 Days Later, the movie, another example. Of course, these are exaggerated. They're over the top. But there's been so much of this that kind of everyone knows what to do. Like when this first started happening, I just immediately snapped into kind of like, oh, this is happening. And then I realized, well, what what script am I acting on? Because this has never happened before in my life. And then I realized, oh, I'm acting like it's 28 days later. It's kind of similar to 9-11, where if you go back, you know, 10, 20, even, even back to the 60s, there was tons of media produced that showed New York being destroyed, uh, you know, whether it was Marvel comic books or, you know, there's so many movies where terrorists destroy New York or, uh, you know, even if you go back and you look at the, the, the movie, the squeeze comedy movie that came out with Michael Keaton in the eighties, the cover of the original cover of the movie was Michael, Michael Keaton crushing the twin towers in his hands. Some people have said this is an, an example of predictive programming that perhaps like these messages, messages are being seeded out to the public by shadowy, uh, you know, sub-governmental powers to put the idea out there or get people ready for a planned event. I don't think that. I think that's a bit too conspiratorial. You might be able to say something annoyingly Jungian, and all Jungian stuff is truly annoying, at least to me. For instance, oh, it's just something that's in the collective unconscious that is bubbling up. You might be able to take a mimetic approach and say that these memes or meme plexes are just floating out there and that, you know, sometimes they become real. Or just the the mimetic idea is seeded out there to the point where somebody eventually acts on it or it becomes, I don't know, coherent within reality. Uh, or you might take a magical view and say that people are charging these ideas with their intention, with their even their idle energy of consuming these ideas and that they are getting closer to manifestation by people giving them attention. You could take any of those approaches or all of them or none, or you could simply say that's a strange phenomenon. One way or another, I truly feel <laughs> that we are living in a dream or a hallucination or a waking nightmare, perhaps. And I'm guessing you probably feel the same. And so there's no need for me to theorize about it or philosophize about it other than to say like, wow, this is really weird, isn't it? And hopefully we can have that shared human experience through the socially distanced aethers. So on that note, my guest for today, the aforementioned guest is Johnny Pemberton, who's a comic and actor. You've probably seen him in lots of TV shows. He was in Ant-Man. And he, of course, is one of the other contributors to Midnight Gospel. Along with me, we actually sat in the writer's room coming up with a content for uh for the show and uh it was great hanging out with him and uh he's he's just a lovely individual 
And so we we did a podcast and we talked a lot about what's going on. We talked about uh, anarchist literature, uh, all kinds of stuff, gardening. There's a ton of really useful information that you would not expect in this podcast. For instance, it turns out that Johnny is a very keen uh, gardener home in addition to being a keen call of duty player like myself he does useful things as well unlike myself at times like urban gardening so if you want to know how to grow your own vegetables in this current time period stay tuned throughout this podcast because he does share that information and uh, i'm fascinated with it and i want to do it myself so this is a great podcast it's a light-hearted podcast because that's what we need right now and enjoy it. I give this to you, my gift to you. All right, uh, let's see. Update for magic.me, office hours are back on. We're doing them every other Sunday. And uh, office hours, for, for those of you who don't know, are the live one-on-one -on -one interactions between me and students at magic.me. It truly is the, the core of what magic.me is, I think. Uh, of course, Magic.me is my school for magic, mysticism, and meditation. If you sign up for it, you get access to, uh, depending on what level you sign up for, you can get access to the mega courses like the Adept Initiative, which is the huge mega program of connecting with your true will, your true purpose for life. Or you can sign up to watch all of the smaller courses on gaining skills like chaos magic, tarot, divination, all of this stuff. Adept Initiative is the crown jewel of Magic.me, but the core of the whole thing is office hours, which is just live interaction between me and students. It's spontaneous. It's in the moment. It There's this really interesting phenomenon that happens where the questions that people ask sequentially tend to kind of line up, sync up, and form a gestalt, like form a, uh, you know, a broader group mind, and they all feed into each other. And, uh, and so we were able to cover, we're able to go very deep and cover territory that wouldn't normally be covered if it's just me sitting there saying, okay, let me explain chaos magic. Um, something, forgive me, uh, but for using this word, but something magical happens when it's spontaneous one-on-one -on -one interaction, you know, the truth begins to emerge the truth of what magic is as a lived experience, um, and uh, students make very, very quick progress in personal evolution, particularly those who come back and interact a lot in those sessions. Uh, and they tell me, you know, the incredible financial breakthroughs they're having, the personal breakthroughs, the career breakthroughs, and it's, it's effing cool, right? It is effing cool to have the feeling that people are having like massive life turnarounds or success and that I at least partially helped with that. That's a cool feeling. So that's magic.me office hours. They happen every other Sunday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And you'll be able to see the schedule of upcoming sessions on the website. If you go to Magic Without Tears, office hours, uh, magic.me office hours, just scroll down on the magic.me site and you will find out all about it. Okay, so I look forward to seeing you there. We have some new announcements coming very soon about new stuff at magic.me and I'm not going to give anything away, but stay tuned to your inbox and the podcast because there are going to be some very exciting announcements very, very soon actually. And get ready is all I have to say. I'm not going to give you any info. I will let it be a surprise. All right. Without any further ado, please enjoy the podcast with Johnny Pemberton. 
Yeah, how's it, how's it going? Yeah. You know, it's going great. Zombie apocalypse. Um, I feel like I'm really enjoying it actually quite a bit. I've been, um, you know, just really having a lot of loggers and stuff. Um, <clears throat> going outside, checking on the garden every every hour or so. To, and uh, it's weird how things don't change in an hour. Uh, yeah, you you kind of expect to go out and like the sky's on fire and there's terminators and um, yeah, you know, garbage trucks, people throwing corpses into garbage trucks. Yeah, and I it's wonder. just there's birds chirping. It's like the old Bill Hicks joke. It's like look on the news, hey, famine, war, death, recession. And you look outside, like birds are chirping. Yeah, everything's this fine. Happening. Everything's totally fine. I totally freaked out as soon right. as this happened. I'm like, I got, we got to go to the mountains. I, I'll kill a bear. Do you need me to kill a bear? Right. And like, <laughs> um, and now I'm finally calming down because I have a hundred inch TV in the Airbnb I'm staring, I'm staying at now. <laughs> so that, that has pacified me. Yeah, I think a lot of this stuff is uh, basically the you have to. It's like a, I, look at, I look at it like a storm, like a long, long storm where if you. Uh, to ration everything out and part of that means rationing out um how much you freak out i think too like really just uh that's a good point tempering everything kind of being like well you know just uh relax essentially that's super smart i like totally i was just going as hard as possible for a month and then i hit total adrenal burnout yeah and man it's a real thing like you're just adrenal glands stop producing that that good shit so um yeah that's a really that's a really smart insight i hope this doesn't go on forever my fear is that like it will go on for like three years and then no one will be allowed out of their house unless they uh accept uh being injected by windows in with they accept being injected with windows 95 by bill gates <laughs> i think that probably <laughs> so. it's never going to be the same now i i because uh, for a long time i was like oh i can't wait to do this and do that like it's going to be some magic day when things are lifted but i think it's probably never going to go back to being what it used to be never yeah i think ne- i think it's never going to be the same there'll be it'll be it'll just always be different you know it's almost like 911 in a way where it's this thing yeah. where everything that happens as long as happens, you never forget yeah, I never forget 9-11. <laughs> it's like, it's like a, it colors everything. I mean, 9-11 is maybe a bad example because 9-11 is so specific, you know? Yeah. And kind of localized in a way. But yeah, I, guess, that you know, was, I mean, that was such a traumatic event and it brought mm-hmm. people together and obviously changed my life permanently and everyone who was conscious at the time. You know? right. And uh, I was in... Like my, I think it was, like, it was the summer before my sophomore year of college that happened. So, yeah, um, me too. Oh, okay. So I think so. Age. Maybe around the same time, pretty much. And I yeah, remember, I was like uh, hungover. Oh, I, yeah. Like I just moved into my my apartment for my second year of college, like my shared dorm type apartment. And the um, one of the guys that worked on the student newspaper that I worked at called me. He was like, "Move? Are you awake?" I'm like, mm-hmm. "No. What? What? You should turn on the TV." And then there, there you have it. The apocalypse. So I feel like at this age, I've been through enough apocalypses that I'm kind of used to it. And I, I will say it's kind of weird that as soon as it happened, it was like I automatically knew what to do. And I was like, why does this feel so familiar? And then I realized it's because I watched so many of zombie apocalypse movies. <laughs> so I just immediately go to the 28 Days Later script. Yeah. So, I mean, I was definitely freaking out at the beginning a little bit in the sense of like like making sure we had enough resources and food to eat. But... I think it's I think it's pretty obvious that the supply chain is not going to break down now. 
So, but I guess what's interesting to me has happened is not so much a breakdown, but just there's just less stuff. It's like, oh, now you can't, like, if you look at a menu for takeout, they have half of what they normally have, but they still have more than any place in Syria has. <laughs> it's like, like <laughs> right, that where, yeah, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, hardship for Americans is kind of like, yeah. okay. <laughs> it's an option, reduction of choices is essentially yeah. what we're going through right now. I mean, not everyone, everyone has a different experience, but my specific experience is, oh, there's, there's less options, which is kind of nice, I think, in a way. It, it really helps uh, when there's less options of what to do. It really helps justifying playing PlayStation. Oh, yeah, totally. So, so that's a plus. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah, you but can't yeah, do anything really. So, yeah, it's crazy. I mean, like you know, so many places in this world they live under perpetual lockdown, like in Gaza or something like that. Oh yeah, but, you know. So Gaza, Gaza. I always feel like I never I always hear people saying it like in Gaza. Is it? Is um, I don't know what it's from. Something in my head. It's like I mean, it's a character being like Gaza. Oh uh, yeah. Gaza. I, <laughs> I, I feel like I, I yeah, I, I never try to like mimic accents. It feels like a terrible social faux pas to. Uh, I've so doubled down on just, it. You know. Oh, okay. Like, so. I mean, like, who's going to call me out on that? And what are they, they going to say? They say you can't do that. And I'll say, what? Why? <laughs> you'll be banned from. You'll be blockaded from Gaza forever. Yeah, from Gaza. If yeah, I uh, do all your accents. Airbnb accounts will be null and void My forevermore in the, middle, in the Middle East. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, are you? Are you? Uh, how's your progress on learning theoretical physics now that you're under lockdown and, and developing massive life skills and turning into uh, the super the superhuman version of Jonathan Pemberton? I haven't even started learning Spanish, so that should say something right there. The Duolingo owl is very mad at you. Yeah, I know. I've been wanting. To, I took for a, for a while. I was learning Spanish, like maybe a year ago. I stopped, and now I have the perfect time to do it. But I haven't been doing it. So, I mean, that should say something. I'm basically just obsessing over the garden a lot, which is very I, easy to do. I've been catching up on your your Instagram interactions with the uh, local loggers and uh, yeah, <laughs> other people, which has been pretty funny. Yeah. yeah, I was freaking out. I was like, you know, it's like everyone with survival skills, everyone's like, I got to hoard toilet paper as much as possible. And I, mm-hmm. I sat down and thought about it. It's like the best survival skill for Southern California would probably be to learn Spanish. Yeah, Spanish is good. Probably uh, um, learn how to chill out. <laughs> learn how to chill out, how to like grow some stuff. You can grow so much stuff here so easily. What are you what are you growing? Well, right now I got the peas coming up. I got the okra coming up. I got the uh some eggplant coming up. I, a lot of stuff is new right now. As far as harvesting, I've just been harvesting the spinach. Uh but that's pretty much done because it gets so hot the spinach doesn't like the heat. Did you just start that for, for this or were you already working? No, on I've been it? doing that for years, yeah. Years now. Years wow. and years and years. But how did you get how did you get interested in that? I don't know. I mean, I kind of remember like the first time I was ever really interested in gardening was probably when I was like, um, maybe like nine or 10 years old or something like that. I remember wanting to plant these bulbs in the backyard for some reason, because I realized you could do that. And um, I don't know, trying to set up this garden. And then just and then in college, I got into it later. I don't know why. I just like, just found it to be interesting. And I like, I like plants a lot. I think they're interesting. And then um, at some point I just got more and more into it. Like when I moved to Los Angeles, I got really into wow. this, the gardening stuff. Once we had, a, we lived downtown in this loft with a couple of my friends at this big patio. We built this 
pretty big garden bed out there. And um, I just read a couple books. Like I read this book called The Urban Homestead, which is yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I, that, really I, that. I was working for that company when that came okay. out. Was that what um, company was that? Was that a well? It was Pro, it was Process Media, which okay. was uh, which was um, kind of a sister company or or part part of I think Feral House. So oh, I was right, the Feral I was a, okay. I was based I was a copy editor at Feral House at the time, working uh, for Adam, who sadly died. Uh, right. Ago. Um, yeah, I but that. I remember when that book came out. That, that's when that's when Adam started to change from uh, like '90s style edge lord to like crystals <laughs> and urban gardening, which was cool to see. <laughs> that's uh, that seems to be a common thing that happens to a lot of people from that era of time where you make that switch. It's a there's it, a lot of a lot of uh, well worn territory to do that, and I, th- I think it makes sense to do that to kind of like transition from. You're saying edge lord to uh <laughs> to you think it's just like crystal hunter well it could be with the yeah. garden maybe it's like the people just get i'm trying to think yeah you're talking now that you're saying this i'm thinking about it, it's totally true mm-hmm. I'm, I'm i can't think of other examples but I, it's definitely a thing and yeah i wonder if it's just people get tired they realize like they they attack society for so long and they realize nothing ever changes so they're like i'm just gonna go like buy a cabin and make a garden i think that's very very true i i used to be a big time peak oil person very much like uh what do you call it i can never say the word correct but it's eshed uh eschatologist or something eschatology yeah yeah eschatologist i was a big time i mean trustwell always gave me shit about that calling me an eschatologist because i would always <laughs> fly in his face about everything like terms of like oh this is all this is all going to end up bad it's all going to end poorly because of all these um projections or lies about peak oil and all this stuff like that and uh i was a big fan of this guy james howard kunstler yeah, still, yeah. I still like him. I kind I, of know him. I don't know him very yeah. well, though. I, he's a writer. Name. He's also like a, 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 he's a new urbanist thinker, which is like, you know, a person who's really into shaming architecture and stuff like that, <laughs> which is, he's probably the most, uh, his most, his most legitimate work is in critique of the way we build uh, cities and buildings and stuff now, how they're, they're not really meant for humans. Everything's meant for for cars, we have we've like completely because of cheap oil, the cheap oil bonanza or fiesta that he calls it, that we've designed all these things that we interact with on a daily basis to be super. They're, they're fucking terribly ugly, and they're not really in a, they're not meant to be interacted with in a human scale. And because of that, that creates like all this distance between people. He, he talks about it at length, but it's, I, I think all that stuff he says is true. That stuff makes total sense because that's like, you know, like you have a big blank wall in the middle of downtown that scares people subconsciously as opposed to like a place that has like, has like a grade set, just all these, all these technical things that were around in cities for hundreds and hundreds of years. We don't have a lot of that now because it's so much cheaper just to build like a big fucking box that has a huge parking yeah. lot with no trees than it's it is to have something that's human. Yeah, it's Did you read that anti-human. book? Um, it's a classic, you now City of Courts by Mike Davis. I haven't no, never it's, it's about LA. It was uh, okay. it was uh, it was written in the late nineties, and it's, it's it's basically about that. It's it's yeah, it's kind of like a city of LA after the riots, and it's basically it's like how do people live in this gigantic alienating sprawl yeah and i feel that la really kind of gets a bad rap in that way and because it there definitely are such does. Like, there's there's such great local communities like echo park 
but uh, or, or all over the place. Like every, you know, what people don't realize about LA is it's a collection of cities, and each one has its own local um, vibe. But yeah, there's like there's like fifteen to twenty areas in Los Angeles that are fully walkable. You can live in the Fairfax district and never have to have a car. You can live downtown. I live downtown. I drove my car like once a week, maybe. I had roommates that didn't, uh, three roommates who not one of them had a car. That's and amazing. we were able to get around everywhere. That's there's, amazing. There's all kinds of stuff. I mean, all that I lived, stuff. I lived for a year without a car in, in yeah. LA, commuting from Hollywood to Burbank. And it wasn't easy, but it definitely did it. Not bad. Yeah, I was thinking about, it's interesting. It says like what, what you're talking about with the architecture. It's like, I was thinking mm-hmm. about the whole social distancing thing is such an exaggeration of what was already making people sick. You know, it's like we already live in a socially distanced culture where yeah. people are, particularly LA, you know, but where people are in their phones and it's like an inflammation or an exaggeration of the thing that was already making people sick. You know, I was actually just thinking about that this morning. Yeah, I was laying a bad thing about like, I wonder what the next thing is going to be. How, how are people going to get sick after not being any in physical contact with other people for this for ha- however long it takes like there's going to be a new illness that comes up because mm-hmm. you know they say that about homeless people how like most homeless people are never touched by other humans because you know they're wow. dirty they're bad there's there's like the stigma and because of that they they tend to get very sick very easily because of that because that's a, that's like a thing with like animals right there's a lot really? of species of animals that if they don't, if they're not touched at all, they will die because yeah. it's something in their brain shuts down and they, they will basically just wither to nothing and die because of they have no touch. I think there's, I'm trying to think, of, I don't know what animals is, but there's a bunch of animals, maybe be primates and stuff, but they, chihuahuas, definitely probably chihuahuas for real. <laughs> actually, I bet dogs, <laughs> I mean, cause dogs are essentially in my mind, dogs are humans, you know, cause we've co-evolved for so long that they, Everything that they yeah. do is so so similar. All their needs. I, I always think that, that dogs are like practice humans. They're like they're yeah. practicing for their next human incarnation. Yeah, you know, exactly. Just like sucking up human vibes. But um, yeah, there's a Native American thing, and I don't know what tribe it is, but that uh, people should get nine hugs a day. Oh wow, that makes as sense. a baseline minimum. Which yeah, you know. I mean it's it's uh, it makes sense a, a lot because it's such a it's a it's like a very real thing you can't really discount but we've all discounted it completely and uh it's easy to because it's kind of that thing where yeah it's just it seems kind of namby pamby or whatever you want to call it when it's there's all this science that says that all these chemicals get released in your brain when you touch someone it's like very real you know about the the wire mother experiment no what's that Oh God! It's like the most horrifying. Never look at it while you're in uh, in altered state of consciousness ever. But it was in the '50s. They did this experiment where they had two baby rhesus monkeys, and they had one. They separated them both from their mother, just mm-hmm. like already fucked up. But and they took one and they made a cloth monkey mother for it to right. hug, and they took the other one and put it in a cage with a mother made out of wire. The wire mother. Oh god! Which is like the most horrifying, like gnostic metaphor of all time. Let me guess: the wire mother wasn't as good. Uh, yeah, and that monkey was all kinds of fucked up. Uh, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's horrifying to think about. Mm-hmm. But I'm like walking around, like even like the interactions that I've had people, like I just interacted with the neighbors at the Airbnb here. For, it's like the first time I've talked to people outside of you know, outside of immediate relations for a month and a half, and. Uh, I was like, everyone was like, you know, being real awkward on social distancing. Man, people are going to be freaking traumatized from this. They're going to going to need a lot of MDMA. That's what they're going to need. Yeah, a lot of a lot of psychologists 
There's going to be a lot of people are going to be twitchy. They're going to, you know, it's really bad. It's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very sick and cruel social experiment. It's like a con- we're also being conditioned against each other in a weird way, you know, mm-hmm. sort of like to be, mm-hmm. oh, someone's coming. Like when I was on a hike yeah. with my friend a few days ago, like a pretty heavy duty hike up in the Angeles National Forest. And we have, we carry masks with us because there's occasionally people on there. And so when we pass someone, we'll put a mask on, you know, because a lot of times they will have a mask on too. And I heard like, I heard a sound of someone talking. I thought I heard someone sound. I was like, asked him, I was like, hey, was that, was that a person? Because I started putting my mask on, you know, because I didn't want to get surprised by someone. I think it was like a bird or something. But it was funny just how conditioned I am to put a mask on just from hearing someone's voice. And it's only been yeah. like, you know, a few weeks of that. That's really that's really sick if you think about it, you know, mm-hmm. that people are being conditioned to, to be that way. To be, it's, like, it's like the opposite of the normal functioning human psychology. Yeah. So they're just getting us ready to get to upload Windows ninety five to the bloodstream. You mean the uh, the uh, the the really rushed? Um, what's it called? The uh, the vaccine. Yeah. I don't know what to think about that. I just hope I have those fucking antibodies, man. I think I got them. Well, there. I I haven't been. I actually haven't been following it too closely just because things have been so. I've just had so much shit to deal with in real life, but. From what I'm understanding, they're doing better testing now in New York and California, and it's like a lot more people than they thought have had it. Meaning, mm-hmm. it's probably not that big of a deal, uh, or that people yeah. are getting uh, light, uh, light cases of it and developing antibodies really quick. So, yeah, I mean, I, the people I've known—I'm not a doctor. Don't people. take medical advice from me. I don't know, <laughs> but you know, the two people I know who've had their antibodies tested tested negative. So that's mm. kind of disappointing. I so I really <laughs> think that. Um, I really think that I that Britt had it, and she had it more recently than me, so she's going to get tested. Well, you think you had it? Well, I think I, I, it's very possible. I was um, in an airport in the end of January, and I was very, very sick in a way that I haven't ever been hmm. in a respiratory sense, and I felt, um, I don't know, I mean, I, I could just as easily have not been, but uh, the stuff that my, the thing my wife had, she had got sick about two weeks after me. She, uh, hers was, was worse, at least well, worse for her. she could have caught her. it from you then, right? What's that? Well, she could have caught it from you then, right? She could have caught it from weeks. me. Uh, she could have not caught it from me too, but okay. we've been together for, you know, in close proximity for all this time. So hmm. I think whatever she had probably was the same thing I had because I didn't get sick again when she got sick, even though we, we did keep away from each other pretty well, but I kind of think if you're living in the same house, even if we're not sleeping in the same bed, which we didn't do it for like maybe like a week or so, I think maybe it's pretty hard to not have some sort of cross contamination. That's it seems to me that's got to be really hard to yeah. to do that. But we even yeah. have separate bathrooms too. So I mean, I don't know. It's just there's that's the thing that gets me about everything is just how much how much how many people do not really know. It's all even the experts are like, well, we we just don't know. So I'm always really hesitant to believe anything at this point. Kind of like, yeah, it almost makes me feel more relaxed is the idea where, you know, what? Just no one fucking has any clue. It's going to be a classic case of hindsight's 2020. And we're just going to have to just chill out for as long as you can. Yeah, totally. Also, I, and 
I feel like actually I actually talked to Duncan about this because he called me in January or he texted me and was like, what, what do you think about this coronavirus situation? I'm like, it's bullshit. I was like, fake news, not real. <laughs> and then uh, lo and behold, a few weeks later, yeah, not so much. Nice one, Jason. Yeah. But, you know, and, and then I talked to him about that and he said, well, yeah, but it's understandable because like we've all been conditioned to not trust anything that we see. Everything has been such total bullshit for the last oh. several years. And the thing so, is, it still is though. I, I, I yeah. You look at CNN and it's, the amount of fear mongering they're doing is insane. Like I regularly will look can't at do it. Yeah, in the I space. Can't do it. I mean, I do it because what I'll do is I'll look not regularly, but like every couple of days I'll look at in the space of 10 minutes I'll look at CNN, Fox News and The Guardian. And it's so oh, funny to see like <laughs> that's to masochist. see oh, Guardian. Jeez. I love I, it. I love a, seeing a, Oh Lord, there's a special my my favorite, by which I mean least favorite of all time, is mm -hmm. the op-ed columnists in the Guardian are just the most sterling examples of humanity that the species has to offer. But uh, yeah, that's very masochistic to look at all that in, in a short period of time. It's really funny to see what what in the same period of time what one news agency is pushing versus the other. Mm -hmm. Like just the other day, I looked at uh, CNN. I mean, CNN is obviously completely always whatever the Trump angle is on something. It's all they talk about. And then by and then Fox News, the top. I mean, they, five, they react to whatever Trump is saying. Oh yeah, everything is yeah. like. Can you believe that Trump said this? Trump did this. So, well, these right. these are the colors that Trump finds irresistible. Right, and then they wonder like, why he's so popular after giving yeah. him free press for years. <laughs> on end. this is like well, great, guys. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, I don't know. I like seeing what the different news agencies, like how they, because it's, it's so much. I almost feel like, you know, that whole idea of triangulation, like how they, they can tell sense. where some, like how they can find a, a location of a cell phone by pinging different cell towers. Oh, yeah. I thought you meant sociopath triangulation. Oh, that's what socio when, when uh, sociopaths or people with borderline personality disorder try to um, fuck with you by fucking with other people in your life or bad-mouthing you to other people that you know, that type mm. of thing. Or they play they play games like that. I gotta uh, try that. That's an awful thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. The, uh, like, you, uh, yes, the self-run triangulation, like, right. as, like if you're in a Ben Affleck CIA movie. Exactly. That's how I think about the news, is I look at three different, like a super conservative, super uh, mainstream, and super liberal, and that's how you can figure out what the truth is, because you like kind of like pick, you find the... Um, sort of the uh the the venn diagram of the truth kind mm -hmm. of and i, I used to be very i used to be very very disciplined about consuming news and i would have an i had an rss read i still have it but i had an oh, rss yeah. reader where i loaded up like 600 different news sources from every conceivable end of the political spectrum and i would sit there this is when i was working full-time as a journalist i'd sit there and just scan everything in the morning like just the headlines and i what i discovered really quickly doing that um I mean, first of all, even just even anybody looking at that and seeing if you look at tons of news sources, even after a week or so, you very quickly can reverse engineer how the whole thing works, which is mm -hmm. basically the only people who do original reporting are Associated Press of Reuters. And yeah, everyone Reuters, else baby. is downstream from that, picks it up and puts their spin on it. And literally yeah. CNN, Fox, they're just they're op-ed uh, outlets, you know, like and and um. <laughs> But I also, you know, it's like, uh, and I also very quickly realized that I know this is a cliche, but it really is true that it's like whatever is actually happening does not get reported. Uh, and you can only pick up on it by 
looking, I mean, at the time, it was looking at things like WikiLeaks or looking at, um, you know, very, like even with peak oil stuff, right? That's a great yeah. example. Nobody ever talked about peak oil. It was like forbidden to talk about in the mainstream, but you would have yeah. to follow, you know, like the writer you're talking about or people's blogs to look at original stuff. And then you would find uh, actual information, but you, it was really, and it's even more so now. This was before the era of Trump. It was actually, this was actually before the era when people figured out that you could press people's rage button to get virality, right? So it was actually before that. So now it's infinitely worse in terms of, you know, it's, I don't even know if you can triangulate the truth now. Yeah. It's not I, being, I don't think information you can. is not there. I mean, I used to have this joke where, um, I think like I stopped looking at the news and the only, the only news that matters is the kind of news where if you're at a gas station and a stranger tells you something. <laughs> right. Like, hey man, did you hear? It's like, what? Did you hear about did you did you buy Bitcoin yet? It's like David uh, Bowie died. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, that's like actual news. Anything someone tells you, like, dude, did you did you yeah. If someone tells you yeah. who you don't know, that's pretty much all you need to know. Anything else is just commentary and like conjecture and a bunch of like smoke designed to make you just you know can you believe this oh my god the best <laughs> right. was that there's a cnn in the cnn headline like i'm definitely am a masochist when it comes to cnn because i just love seeing how <laughs> to me it's just this amazing thing where i can't believe it's a real thing because i when i was a kid i was obsessed with the news like around 10 through like maybe 14 because okay. my dad, my dad was never into sports at all. He would come home every day after work and he would watch the McNeil Lair News Hour. Holy shit, my dad did the same thing. I used yeah. to fall asleep to my dad watching the McNeil, uh, McNeil Lair Hour. Dude, that That's was hilarious. the fucking golden age. Of, that was yeah, like was. real news, man. That was the real talking. shit. Yeah. Like I watched a Reuters That's piece awesome. the other day. It was like, oh man, watch if you watch a writer's piece, it's so calm and it's like <laughs> concise and it's not like a bunch of like just uh, it's just that's how news used to be. Used to be boring. Well it used to be the news. It used to be the news. And I remember I used to watch that all the time. I became obsessed with the news. It's like you know how like like a little little boy his his dad's into sports. The dad you the little kid gets into sports too, you know what I'm saying? Like that kind of thing. So I feel like uh that's what happened with me was where like I wanted to get you know sort of impress or become closer with my dad by being in the news. So I was obsessed with CNN. This is right, right around the first uh, the first Gulf War. Oh, so that so, was the heyday of Wolf Blitzer. Wolf Blitzer, Peter Arnett, <laughs> Bernard Shaw. Named. Oh wow, knew, you're you're going. You're I knew deep, all the names. Know, I remember watching the, the live. Oh man, I used to watch all the live coverage and stuff of those guys. And just like I was obsessed with it. I had my Time magazine so I could read about all the these are the 114 Abrams tanks equipped with an M14A <laughs> mine sweeping device. And you had like Norman Schwarzkopf and you had you know, I think Dick Cheney was was he the Department of Defense chief at that time? Something I think so, was, yeah. there was all these people's names I knew. I was obsessed with collecting the names of journalists and stuff like that. And wow. I was so into that stuff, but then I eventually kind of, you know got older and got into like music and stuff like that but and then i kind of got really into like a lot of um alternative journalism like you know like counselor peak oil kind of crap yeah. and basically long story short is when everyone started getting really woke and into politics like maybe about four or five years ago yeah. i was like i'm done <laughs> like, yeah, i've I, already, I the same I've already been was... there i'm so over it now because i've already had my 
my time where I'm like, the sky is falling. Peak oil is going to destroy. Right. Everything's going to happen. And then you kind of realize it's not. I actually want to circle back on peak oil because I, yeah. I was deep, deep into that too. Yeah, and, me too. And, Very deep into it. And, you know, obviously they seem to have headed it off at the past just by fracking the hell out of everything. But I kind of wonder, I wanted to touch on that because it's like, well, I'm, I'm kind of curious since you follow this, just how this type of how this dynamic is going to change now that gas is like like literally I just filled up my car and you're here for a dollar ninety nine a gallon. Wow, that's cool. I gotta go out and, and some uh, gas. Yeah, right. So and it's like yeah. oh, well, if prices are tanking. Obviously, it'll come back, but nobody's driving, and I'm wondering. Uh, I don't know. Have you thought about this all in terms of oil consumption? Or uh, I guess so a little bit. I mean, what what the the big thing with uh, peak oil that they always talked about? Excuse me, was um. The RO, what is it? The ROI, uh, not a return of, not, sorry, not the return of investment. It's the re- energy, um, energy expended versus energy returned, which, okay. well, that's, that's the oil, co- that's what the uh, coefficient that makes gas so good. What they're talking about, the big thing they talk about is how, okay, if it takes this much energy to get the oil out of the ground, uh, the price point of the product has to be a certain level to make it worth it. So the big problem with fracking was they lowered the price of oil so much that it became where you can't make enough profit to incentivize production. And so that was what they always talk about is how before peak oil, for the actual peak oil, there'll be a massive spike. So it'd be a thing where it's the opposite of a drop. It'll be a um, a massive price drop, then a spike, and then the f- bottom falls out of the whole fucking system because basically you can't. Uh, there's not enough capital in the oil production to be able to actually um, find new find new oil and also get the oil that's existing out of the ground because it's, it's so expensive to get it out. And that's what they say is the that's how that's the the non sexy version of what of how peak oil happens. And so maybe that could be what we're seeing now. But also I'm kind of of the opinion now where it's, there is enough alternative energy to where I don't think it would be as big a deal as it was, you know, like 10 years ago, even 10 years ago, because it, there you is mean, a lot of stuff. What specifically do you think is viable at this point? Well, I mean, there's just every kind of anything really, but it's also the whole thing about, uh, um, it's the scalability of it, and I because nothing scales like oil. There's nothing like right. that. nuclear. It, when I looked at it, it seemed like nuclear was the only realistic option, which yeah, the Obama even, administration was push, pushing. Uh, I think rightly so, right. even though it's a bit heretical to say. It seemed when I did the math on it, it seemed to me at least when I, I did the math on it in 2007, and so it seemed to me at least then, and this is now 13 years ago, that nuclear was really the only viable Hail Mary pass for peak oil. Yeah, that's or just also, getting off oil consumption in general, right? right? Which really is the uh, you know for all of us who lived through nine eleven, it's like, well, why you know, like for me, the primary question of my entire twenties is what the fuck went wrong? Why did yeah. we end up in Iraq? Why did we end up in Afghanistan? Why did nine eleven happen? And it, it, it least seemed to me at the time, I don't know if I would have the same analysis now, but the obvious analysis that everyone made at the time was it's all for oil. Mm-hmm. So, so the immediate question was, how do we get off oil? Because presumably that would be the most intelligent way to do peace work. But um, I don't know if I would have the same analysis now, because I think it's not just about oil. I think it's about ideology and territory and all of that. So And contracts. Mm-hmm. 
all those contractors. Tasty contracts. Well, they make like how much? They probably must have infinite probably, money. I think they made like three billion dollars. Like companies like Raytheon and Northrop Grumman and all those companies. Halliburton. They make so much money with these no bid defense contracts that anytime there's any kind of a war starts, they just make fucking hand over fist because they can charge whatever they want for all these things and there's there's no oversight really. I mean, look like the, look look like the Raptor program. Like that's the most expensive military boondoggle in the history of the, the country. drones. Uh, the the Raptor, the new F twenty five, whatever it's called, the new uh, the the latest fighter jet. The F thirty five. Yeah, that's the most expensive yeah. thing that the, the Department of Defense has ever purchased, and it doesn't fucking work. It just started working like you know recently. I stopped reading about it because it's just yeah. What's the deal with those? Like, I think. Book. They they probably um, they the, the the program is something like a hundred trillion dollars in a cycle, oh, it's, until twenty seventy seven. It's the craziest. And, it's and they hilarious. don't work. And it, it, like they have mm-hmm. you know like they're running like you know MS DOS or something as an operating system. <laughs> Not literally, yeah. but but yeah, I don't know too much of the details. I know that like they made they're making tons of them for Israel, uh, and there's something like you know at least a hundred million, two hundred million dollars each in these claims, uh-huh. maybe more. Um, so. It's but yeah, from what I hear, they don't work and people hate them, but they're locked in into this contract mm-hmm. now, which is bizarre. Well, they're kind of priced in. Like they've spent so much money, they have to keep spending money because otherwise they'll have wasted all the money they spent. It's like a poker game where, you know, if you play poker, like you've spent the pots, uh, pots at a thousand and you've put in 500 and you have, you know, 250 chips left. You might as well just spend what you have left because there's yeah. no point in, in folding now. Yeah, yeah, that's called the uh, the sunk cost fallacy. Yeah, and and it's a, it's. I mean, people are taught to you know taught to that that kills businesses, it kills marriages. You know, it's like what if you're priced it kills in? all kinds of stuff. Yeah, well, well, it's like if you like, for instance, if you have a business and you've been running it for into the red for years, and yeah, you're totally locked into it, and it's really obvious that it's just a bad business idea. But somebody refuses to you know somebody obviously and, and another another a more obvious example would be an investment. Like, you know, mm-hmm. you bought some cryptocurrency that went to zero and you're like, oh, it's going to come back any day now. Yes. You know, I put like $10,000 into it, so I might as well write it out. It's like, no, you should have sold and taken the taken the, or taken the hit. That's why poker is great because only three rounds of betting or three, you know, three. Got the got the uh, the river, the turn, and the flop. So. Poker is fascinating to me. I played a lot of poker in high school and uh, I lost a lot of money <laughs> Uh, not professionally, but just to other students and make a lot of time. But uh, but um, it is a fascinating study here. I think you can learn everything you need to know about human psychology and certainly business oh, yeah. and life in a lot of ways you can learn from poker. Not because of the actual game, but because of the interactions. Yeah, totally. It's a great, it's the perfect game. I fucking love it. It's like, uh, I find it very, to be, uh, it's a good, good um, distraction. You play you play a lot of, a lot of video poker, a lot of online I play poker. A good, play a good amount, enough. Yeah, a hand uh, or two. Yeah, play a little bit. I do all I right. saw this. I saw this long Reddit post a few years ago where somebody it was like some this, this silly, obnoxious Reddit forum, subreddit or life advice or something like that. And somebody had posted uh, this long post that was their life advice to young people was to, instead of going to college, become a professional poker player for four years. And just make a shit ton of money at it, and then 
infest it and then do whatever you want for the rest of your life. And it sounds like the stupidest thing of all time. But then I read it and I was like, actually, this checks out. This makes perfect sense. You literally could become a professional poker or blackjack player and like go to like hang out at Hawaiian gardens. And you, know. you could, I think that the prerequisite that is you have to have like a super high IQ and be really good with math. Like that probably, yes. uh, that's what they've probably failed to mention is that like all those professional poker players have those crazy computer brains or they just fucking, you know, they're not normal people. They're like, have a weird computer brain that is special. Like I could, I couldn't play professional poker. I just don't have the, I got the grit to play, but I don't have the fucking computer brain. You don't think you can just buy people out? Uh, no, because so much of that is, is like analysis of the board and like probability and stuff like that. You have to, you have to basically be spinning all these plates of, okay, I have this, that's what's out there. What's the likelihood of comparing what I have to what I've seen uh, with what's going to come down and all this. I mean, I think that's, that's why they say that poker is not a game of chance is because it really can, you can, if you're smart enough, you can, um, you can kind of figure out, especially if you're playing with people who know how to play and play consistently or just somewhat consistently, you can, you can figure out what's going to happen based upon a lot of, um, you can't figure it out, but you, you're, you can increase your odds of it. You know, I, it's the same as like all this, uh, coronavirus stuff where I talk about like, you know, social distancing and any, anything you're doing, nothing actually stops anything except a hundred percent isolation. All you're doing is just making the odds better. So I think with poker, all you can do is increase your odds of winning. You can't guarantee anything, but if you do something enough times with the uh, probability in your favor, you will win just because that's how how life works. You know, like I always, uh, if I I fold a lot, and if I um if I keep getting bad cards, I know I'm going to get good cards at some point because it's just. You can't just constantly get bad cards. It doesn't make any sense. It's like, you know, it just doesn't make any. It doesn't make any sense because of probability. There was a guy you may know him actually. This, this is just, I, I became utterly fascinated with this. There was an MIT math uh, PhD in the mm-hmm. '60s who essentially came up with modern blackjack theory, and he wrote a oh, book yeah. called How to Win at Blackjack. Do you know who I'm talking about? I know, but this is the one where the uh, I think a bunch of um, Christians used it to. Not steal, but to win a ton of money. And they oh, did really? It. They did it. That's yeah. hilarious. It's some crazy story because he had Jesus the on their side. Yeah, yeah. And, they, and they did. The system still was, works. Yeah, it totally works. It's the kind of thing where it's super easy to do. I guess I've never tried it. I'm not a blackjack. Oh, player, I've right? tried it. I, I recommend but, it. You can. It's it's fairly simple. You can get it on an index card, and then you can just do it with like a, just like a blackjack app. But um, I became fascinated with this because this guy later went on to become a stock trader and made in, like infinite money. Wow. And um, he's one of the, the special brains. But, yeah, that's computer brain shit, man. Anytime I meet yeah. someone like that, I'm always like, holy shit. Yeah, it's it's intimidating, right? But it's like, yeah. I bet it became fascinating with the idea of like these very simple games, these, like you're saying, probability games. Um, you can extrapolate from these very simple games essentially the entire global economy and uh-huh. how it works, you know? And it's, kind of, it's interesting because kids' games are sometimes similar. You know, I'm trying to think of... Um, there's some very basic, like for instance, I've I've had the analysis that you can break down the ent- all social media and online communication in the entire world to the show and tell game from, uh, you know, basically all social media 
in the literally all of it in the entire world comes down to two very basic elementary school games show and tell here's my vacation here's what i did here's the music i like here's me all this here's my makeup tutorial whatever and the other one is i'm telling right which is you know the the uh uh, social justice brigades of various types on social media right (laughs) but it's the same it's like but you can probably extrapolate even um uh uh, you know, patty cake and things like this are very simple social interaction. Mm-hmm. Another one, uh, which I was thinking about recently, is Ring Around the Rosie, which is a game from the Black Plague. Yeah, which is, uh, Rosie. prepping people to deal with mass mortality events. Right, because right, Ring Around the Rosie means a, you have a ring around a uh, where the bite is, right? Is that what it is? Oh, is that it? I think it's, you know how, you, how uh, if you have Lyme disease, how that works? I do not get, have Lyme disease. Well, if you get bitten by a Lyme t- uh, by a deer tick that has Lyme disease, where the bite the bite site, you typically have a red ring around the bite. Oh, 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 oh yeah, 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 yeah. So this was the same with bubonic plague. Yeah, that's ring around the rosy. Well, man's ashes to ashes, we all fall down. Right, and that's because they were burning tons of. Uh, they had a lot of fires going at the time to burn the bodies. The bodies yeah. Which apparently weren't they doing this in New York? I think uh, in in certain places. I mean, they should be. It's good. It's good policy. They were dropping people on Hart Island, the, the Potter's Field. But they've been doing that for intense. 150 years, right? That's been that's. The, yeah, 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 yeah. They have, but I mean, you know, that many yeah. people. I don't know. I mean, um, I, I don't know. I, I, this is why I get less. The same reason I don't, don't worry about uh about, about peak oil. Wait, I'm trying to. Peak oil. It's the same reason I don't really oh, worry shit. about coronavirus much anymore either because. It seems like a lot of that stuff is, uh, it's the fringes, you know, you don't, you're just not hearing about as many, um, the fact that there are a bunch of people are dying who are, whose remains have been unidentified means that they're, these are people who probably, uh, may have been vagrants or they may have been like, uh, fringe members of the, uh, fringe community of the, which is very sad, obviously. Yeah, it's, it's not, not like, so fringe anymore in LA. I mean, it's like you look at the homeless crisis in LA with coronavirus. Yeah. That's like the perfect shitstorm. Yeah, and it's probably um, going to. And also, you hear about all this stuff with these these uh, nursing homes and stuff, and how they just get, that's that's fucked. It's sad, but at the same time, also like, well, it, who better? Who better to 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 die in something like this than people who are basically prepared to die anyways because they're living out the re- last moments of their lives as very sick people who need if you need to live in a nursing home it's because you can't take care of yourself on your own so you're someone who's you're not gonna you don't go into a nursing home and then get better and come out right i mean you go to right. nursing home right. and that's where yeah. you that's where you finish your life it's not hospice but it's it's the next step up from hospice and so you know, the idea that it's like, it's obviously sad when a bunch of people die, but it's not like there was like a massive fire that they all burned alive in. These are people who are very, very, uh, their bodies are very old and they can't fight hardly anything. They can't take care of themselves. And so all it takes is just a little bit of Corona to knock them out. <laughs> have this thing yeah. where it's, uh, it's terrible, but at the same time, it's also like, it's, it's almost like a, you have this, insulating layer that's taking the brunt of all these of all these deaths and so yeah which does seem to be a very natural process in a way yeah it's in a way it feels i mean this is like a lot of times i look at stuff from this perspective of really far away and it's it seems kind of extremely cold (laughs) and almost like uh 
like a sociopathic way of looking at stuff, but I, I think it, it does make sense if you if you look at something from really far away, how it's not really that bad in that sense because it's not we're not having like tons of young, healthy be, people being decimated by this thing. Yeah. Oh well although we are having some. I think some, no, I, yeah, I, I some, totally know that's what just, you mean. that's normal. I think that I do the same thing. In fact, I, I, that's probably my default setting is looking mm-hmm. at things for, like from an extremely uh, long view. Um, but I think you have to do both. You have to be able to do both. You know, you have to be able to like look at things as statistics, and uh, you know, like, like you know, like you can easily look at coronavirus and say, like, you know, look from the, the planetary perspective, this is mm-hmm. great. You know, it's like there's too yeah. many people. There's too much consumption. The fact that LA is you know, clear skies right now is nothing short of a, a miracle. Um, you know, the earth and nature must be happy as hell about this. Um, right. But but then you have to also be able to come back into narrow focus and like interact with it's like, okay, it's like an individual person. If somebody has lost somebody they love to coronavirus, it's like if somebody's dying of coronavirus, like it's, it's, it's horrible. You know, you have to be able mm-hmm. to, to, to handle it as a human being. <laughs> so Yeah, totally. I guess I just don't think it's any worse than any other way to die. It's just it's like a thing where um, it's something it's something that kills people now. Right. It's like a new way to die that we have so more and more people. So it makes sense that we have a new way to die because there's just so many more. I'm honestly surprised it's not worse than it is. Yeah, I am I'm too. A, I'm you, a little you like, like a disappointed. Are you a frustrated eschatologist? Oh, I'm not. I'm, well, that's the thing. Going back to what we were talking about a while ago, I'm not really an eschatologist anymore. And I feel like I had like a turning point. I actually have a very, I know exactly when it happened too. You know that guy, Paul Stamets? Yeah. He's, a, yeah. he's like that soul cyber research guy. mushroom guy. Yeah. He was doing some experiments where he put these, uh, these big piles of trash, like filled with oil and all kinds of stuff, all kinds of like toxic environmental contaminants. He was able to grow mushrooms in these piles and these mushrooms are able to break down these contaminants like a hundred wow. times faster than anything else and when i saw that and just some of the stuff he was doing i was like man that's that's an actual thing that someone's doing that is can alleviate pollution and the other thing is i learned about how there's a lot of um you know how you can't just if you want to you couldn't just go out and buy a bunch of gas right now you can't keep it in your garage because I got some. <laughs> you can you can keep it for, but it doesn't. It doesn't last forever. Yeah, like it was here when I moved in. But yeah, right. But the the like gas is something where it seems like it's this inert thing where you can just keep it in a can. But it, you know, bacteria can destroy stuff like that. There's all kinds of these chemicals that seem like they're hardcore toxic chemicals. And I guess my my thought is this: is that like uh is i believe in nature over everything always like 100 percent. and i feel like um i mean this is a whole other bunch of you know weird beliefs i have but uh basically there's so much plastic trash out there right something like you know how nature abhors a vacuum it hates yeah. waste something will find a way to eat that because you got to do that in the Jeff Goldblum voice. Yeah. Jurassic oh, yeah. Life, life will <laughs> uh, find a way. Uh, life will, um, <laughs> uh, something will uh, eventually develop a, uh, a, 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 a taste for this uh, uh, plastic, uh, these uh, little beads, these things that something will, will, will eat it and uh, it, it will be, it will grow. It will be a, a monster because it will uh, eat the oil. Something's going to have, something really will learn to eat. They'll learn to consume 
whatever that fucking shit is, it's probably going to be some little bacteria. It's going to eat it because yeah, mutated coronavirus. Yeah, it's going to find a way to consume plastic and flesh eating Ebola, plastic eating I mean, Ebola. I mean, maybe it's that. It's probably something really boring that it's like tiny, a tiny, tiny organism. And that organism then will get eaten by big, you know, just the classic food chain shit, but something, and it's maybe, it won't take that long, probably. I bet it's going to take like a hundred years because shit, that's all those microbiologists and stuff. They constantly find new species because new species are being born all the time and stuff's being going extinct constantly, like this constant refresh rate that, I mean, so just in my mind, like that is, is, will happen even whether we want to or not. Like it just, I just don't believe in like the ultimate doom of things. It doesn't seem possible. Yeah, I think, Yeah. well, it's, I mean, it's a fairly like, I mean, this is probably something that everyone thinks at some point and it's like a totally obvious and somewhat sophomoric uh, uh, thing to think, but, but it's also one of one of those obvious things that's so obvious that it's easy to forget, which is that nothing on the planet is not part of the natural process of the planet. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's like every, all of this is part of nature, including you know, uh, you know whatever, uh, you know, the, the most terrible chemicals and you know radioactive isotopes and the head yeah. Monsanto and all of that. Like that's all part of nature's process. So uh, pollution is part of nature. Like it's, it, nothing is outside of that system. Mm -hmm. uh, so which you know. So then the question is, well. Uh, is there guiding intelligence behind it? Yeah, I think there absolutely is. Not not even necessarily in a theistic sense, but you just look at the way that life behaves, adapts, and like you said, nature abhors a vacuum. It's just mm -hmm. con it's constantly adapting and and uh, developing its next iteration, like the refresh rate, like you were saying. And it's I've also noticed that dynamic where how many you know we talk about eschatology like how many eschatological events have there been just in our lifetimes? I mean, you're talking about McNeil error. I still remember. Um, when everyone was 100% convinced they were going to die in a nuclear exchange with the Soviet Union. And then it just yeah. went away and no one ever talked about it any anymore. And then it's like, well, 9-11, then it's, you know, you know, AI mortality. Now it's coronavirus. Now it's peak oil. Like peak oil went away and no one ever talks about it anymore. It's like, well, where'd it go? Like what happened? You know? Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know It seems know to either. be refreshed. And it's like, okay, well then that's not happening anymore. Okay. Have you read that book, uh, Nature is Trying to Kill You by Dan Riskin? <laughs> no, but that's a good title. It's fucking great, man. He's, a, he's like a biologist. He talks about how, you know, all these, all these animals that are, uh, that are just having some crazy intense lives and the things they do and how, how and our interaction with them is, you know, we're, we're essentially survivors, right? Like we humans are indestructible. We're just fucking total badasses in a way, if you think about it. And uh, he's, I always think about that in terms of uh, like the human genome. That's what got me thinking about how I'm not ever worried about a nuclear attack. Like people are like, oh, Trump's got his finger on the red button. Like we can't trust him. And I'm like, uh, we don't have to trust him because we have everyone. You can trust everyone because the collective genome of humans will not destroy itself. The genome will right. not allow... For some, for one person to destroy all people, it just wouldn't happen. I just think it's one of those things where I think a nuclear annihilation is not possible because the human genome is so strong and controls everything we do to the extent where it wouldn't allow us to destroy ourselves. Right, and and the, the crazy thing about that is, um, by the way, I was actually uh, 
Um, there, the day they sequenced the human genome <laughs> at Santa Cruz, I went the day they did it to interview the, the, the public team that did it, which is like this bizarre confluence of events. Yeah. But um, uh, the uh, it's, it's, it's like weird to just suddenly be in that the right place in the right time. But the um, the crazy thing that I that I learned later is that it's not even the human genome. DNA is the same for all life on the yeah, earth. Man. It's just shuffled like a tarot deck. Ooh. Right. So it's only one organism. Yeah. And, and uh, one of the craziest things that uh, I, I ever read, I wrote about in, in, in Generation Hex, is that uh, Francis Crick, first of all, Francis Crick, one of the two guys that discovered DNA, saw fucking DNA in an acid trip. Obviously, I'm more of a Watson guy. So, I mean, okay. I'm, no, I you're a Watson guy. Yeah, you're a, but uh, Crick, you know, he's the, yeah. the, the wild and crazy one. Um, but he later, he wrote a book in 1981 called Life Itself, where he, mm-hmm. he, this is a, there's a, a theory called panspermia, which is less exciting than it sounds, uh, which it goes back to the Roman Empire. But uh, basically, he's he's a believer, and he basically said that what he thinks is that some piece of DNA was on a meteorite that crashed on Earth and it produced all of this. You just need one DNA molecule, yeah, or whatever it is, and it just resequences itself in, a, in infinite combinations to reproduce all this stuff, and then dry, and then drives all of our behavior just to reproduce itself. Mm-hmm. Right, almost everything we do is 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 determined either by DNA or mitochondrial DNA, just trying to replicate itself. But it's the same for all life. The weird thing it's about that whole thing, thing is that it makes complete sense. It's almost right. Like, right. <laughs> yeah, it just kind of like nothing else may really makes sense. That makes more sense than anything, and it's super super far out. But it just like. It, it's also kind of the simplest answer. It's the simplest answer that it also explains the simulation too, because it's almost like a like a secondary thing. You know, the idea. I mean, I guess you can never really know what's what, right? I I, don't, I haven't gone down the rabbit hole of that ever to to the extent. Do you know about, really about photon emissions from DNA? I guess I'm talking about like you know when they find like hexadecimal programming code in a leaf that they've only oh, yeah, found yeah. in a Hewlett Packard yeah. printer, like that kind of <laughs> right, shit, right? Like, how is that possible? And it's, well, it's possible, possible because- if you think about it. The, the, the hex, if you, it's, if you simply think about it from the perspective that both the hexadecimal processor in Hewlett Packard and the leaf are produced by the same DNA. Exact same thing. Right? It's still, it's expression of the same thing. So the, um, yeah, that is crazy to think about. And they also discovered that DNA can emit light photons. I didn't know about that. It literally Whoa. comes out of it. <laughs> so in terms of like what we're perceiving and things like that, like I'm convinced that all of this is we're almost completely controlled by our own. It's, it's just, everything we see is just DNA recombining to replicate itself in new My, uh, And, and we a, really don't have a whole lot of free will in that regard. What, what you're saying, uh, I have a good, one of my best friends, my best friend in life, his brother is a scientist, is a doctor of, uh, I guess he's a microbiologist or something like that. He studies addiction and he works for this big time, big time lab in Switzerland. I have, I've had him on my podcast a couple of times. His name is uh, Paul Johnson. He's a doctor. And um, I was hanging out with Phil and my and Britt and, um, and Paul a couple, maybe about eight years ago. We were in Minneapolis at uh, Phil's apartment, and we were, you know, drinking a bunch of, bunch of, bunch of, bunch of tons of craft ales, 
Yeah. Just, you know, yeah. had a, this was back before it was cool, man. This is back like, you know, when the shit was real dog, when you had to like, <laughs> you had to find it. It wasn't being thrust in your face by marketers. You just had, you had to fucking find it, man. You have to wait in line for it. You had to find where it is. So this is, you know, we we're in the forefront of craft. You have to suffer, have to suffer for your craft. Yeah, man. We're drinking a lot of Russian Imperial stouts. If you know what that is, <laughs> I do. hit me up, baby. Yeah. Back when Russian Imperial, I can't, I can't drink that anymore. So we were staying up late, right? We're probably smoking a little bit of, uh, you know, that old good old herb, baby, maybe. I don't oh, know. Boy. Who knows? Maybe not. Um, but uh, Paul was like, um, he said, I have to remember how it started. Basically, we're talking about, we were talking about heady shit, you know? And he was saying, you want to hear something that you kind of can't unhear? And I was like, um, um, yes, yes, I do, actually. It's like, are you sure? Because if I tell you this, you might it might affect how you think about life from here on out. I'm like, are you kidding me? You can't have told me something. You can't have baited me more. Yeah. Like, can you imagine? Like, that's the best way to get someone to the listen to this. Test. Yeah. Hey, uh, do you want to do you You're not know ready something? for this. You're not ready for it. Are you ready for this? Yeah, yeah. No, I know so, all about this. <laughs> we sat, my, in my line of work, I know all about this. It's the best. We sat down and he told us this thing he learned about in his research where he studies addiction and how they, they basically put, I'm going to bungle this, but I, I'll, I'll get it basically right. They take these single cell organisms and they put them in a, you know, in a, an agar, in a field of uh, whatever it is, whatever they live, live in, like saline or some shit. And they're surrounded by a field of oil. The oil kills them instantly. But beyond the field of oil is glucose, is sugar. And the single cell organism, this particular whatever it is, it's attracted to the sugar because it wants to eat it. And 100% of the time, the single cell organism will kill itself to get through, uh, it'll, it'll die to get into the sugar. And they do always permeations on it and variations or whatever, you know, on these experiments. Basically what he's, what they've just decided or their hypothesis, and this is not like their hypothesis, but it's, it's something that is um, pretty well known, like the science of addiction is that the idea of free will is kind of a myth that we're all do everything, everything we do, we're always going to be doing it no matter what, because when it comes down to every, every decision we make is the same as a, as a single cell making a decision where it's not making a nuanced decision of, oh, I could do it this way, I could do it that way. It's either yes or no. It's like this thing where I'm either going to seek this, this thing or I'm going to not not get the thing um, and if you break down every decision you make into being whether or not you are uh doing something or not doing something that's why that's why addicts are almost you never if you're an addict you're never not an addict you never get over your addiction right. you just learn to manage it and that's the same with anything any human does is you're, all you can do is manage it because you're deep inside you is this thing that there's it's inherently you do not have free will like you think you do. It's basically what he was saying right. through these experiments with addiction. Yeah, and I, I agree completely. And I think that the, well, yeah, mostly, I, I, I also, I mean, I've thought about this a lot, uh, as you might imagine. And I think that the thing about, it, you know, the, the classic trope of, you know, addicts are always addicts, you know, absolutely true. Right, you know, and having known a lot of heroin addicts, right, it's like you, you don't come back from it. It's like your brain is rewired. But that said, I also think that nobody is not an addict. 
I agree. Right? Which is a bit, and, and, and I'm not saying that in like a glib or a, you know, no. like a precious way. It's like we're all, even at the chemical level. Yeah, we're all addicts because we all, we're all trying to find the thing there to satisfy like the primitive part of your brain. It's like, you know, do this so you get that dopamine response. Everything, we're all just fucking water slaves and dopamine <laughs> slaves. <laughs> yeah, that's a good like, way to put it. Everyone is. Think, yeah. And, and if you think about it, and you know, it's just like some things are. You know, there are some things to be addicted to that have different effects than others. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's like heroin is not necessarily any different from any other thing. Uh, yeah. But the, um, the, uh, uh, and, and certainly would, you know, people would be, if they just got clean heroin instead of dirty street heroin, would have a better variety of things. But the, um, uh, I mean, I've known, I've known street addicts who will rip a hole in their arm with a bottle cap to drop. Uh, I drop her heroin into it. It's like that's that's addiction, right? So yeah. I'm not I'm not saying this and oh everyone's an addict. I mean, there's severe addiction, and that is definitely its mm-hmm. own thing, right? But it's also it is a spectrum, and you know, not to 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 throw in the obligatory Buddhism comment. Uh, you know, the whole point, all that Buddhism really is, I think, the, the whole point of Buddhism is like, you're, you're all addicts. It's like, life is an addiction. Oh, yeah. It's just, the, you, know? you, ha- you have the awareness. You get the, you get the peace and the happiness of being aware that, oh, I can't control anything. So, I mean, that's what, when, when stuff started getting bad with the whole, um, when, it's not getting bad. I hate fucking saying that. But when people started getting all fucking crazy a few years ago when Trump was elected. Yeah. Before like Trump. That's an addiction. Like the, whatever that rage is. You know? I think the, the, the TDS is probably the worst addiction around right now. <laughs> yeah. TDS to me yeah, yeah. is like, not only is TDS. What are people going to do with themselves when he's not president uh, anymore? You know, dude, I'll like, tell you one thing. To... The New York Times is going to not be making that much money. That's for sure. Yeah, no kidding. If and, I work for New York Times, as, dude. It's the same as that uh, one. Uh, when the right wing people were like all crazy about Obama and his birth certificate, it's like the same shit, you know. Obama is the fucking rocket fuel for them, basically. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like the New York Times, it makes so much more money with Trump as president. It's like a, tr- it's a fact, and they they like fucking like yes, maybe yeah, that is that. And I watch and watch. I guess we both we both watched that happen, where basically when it went to online news, it basically became you know like the the oil experiment you're talking about. It's 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 the the mouse cocaine experiment where Dude, it's the, the fucking the coke it's the Skinner. What's it called? The Skinner box. Skinner box. Yeah. Hit that fucking pellet, baby. Ah, Trump. Yeah. It's like well, like you know, you should. You guys love Trump. Everyone loves this guy so much. It's like he brings. Love he, he he brings like this pole of uh, uh, this, this this thing to their life where you know they can just oh. put all their hang all their he's the public scapegoat. He know, is like, it, man. Scapegoat with a lot of power, but you know mm-hmm. it's like yeah, it's like you know is he in your house? Is he sitting on your couch? Uh huh. Drinking your beer, you know it's, it's like, total you know, madness. To focus on him. Well, that's that's just first started happening. I kept thinking about how you know like that's that's such a Buddhist idea is because. Uh, it's like the idea of, um, oh man, because a lot of comedians would say, and they still do. They say, um, obviously, this is pre, excuse me, pre-COVID. Is they would say, oh man, with things with things being so bad as they are right now, it's like the new the new hack is to say, man, shit's so terrible right now. Like, what are you fucking talking about, you idiot? The new hack? You mean yeah. like being a hack comedian? Yeah, being a hack comedian is to do this pandering thing where you're saying, man, shit's so, with things being so bad right now. <laughs> And you say that because it's sort of like acknowledging this, this, uh, this idea of, of 
because Trump is there, everything's bad. And the truth is, it's always been bad. Everything's always been fucking terrible. The stock market recently. Yeah, everything's always been terrible. And the idea that now it's just now it's just sort of like this trendy, fashionable thing to say it when everything's been really terrible. Like things are awesome now. Things are great. That's but that's that's even in the global pandemic. You know, you know, like uh, once last time you looked at like you know Black Plague stuff. Anything, all that stuff. It's all that all that stuff. It makes it super irrelevant. It makes anything time someone says that to be ridiculous. But also, if you look at like just in general, like uh, oh, things are so bad right now. Uh, there's probably many children being raped right now. There's all kinds of there's stuff that's unspeakably terrible that happens every sure. day to people who don't deserve it. And so, if you think about that, because that's what the Buddha uh, that was the uh, the whole tenet of Buddhism is this idea of of suffering right the idea yeah, that- it's like shit sucks like just you it, well it's not that it's people always get it it's like it's like you know what is the dharma the dharma is yes things suck but they don't have to suck mm-hmm. they will suck a lot less if you stop spending all of your energy trying to make them not suck that's right. what that's the addiction it's like just yeah. stop they just calm they just chill out you know, you, and you watch like a like a um three-year-old right just go crazy doing like a billion things a second and, and like, you know, it's like one addiction after, or we remember when we were kids, you know, it's like, remember the addiction to Ninja Turtles? Oh, like that the was like the biggest fucking thing. Yeah. The best, the best thing right? ever. It's like everyone our age, like every guy our age was like Ninja Turtles was like the fucking thing. It was, that was the heroin. Yeah. And then eventually you got, yeah, yeah, and then it was something else and then it was something else. And then, you mm-hmm. know, next thing you know, it's fucking craftier, you know, but like, <laughs> right. <laughs> but, or whatever, you know. And, and it's just, there's always that thing. But the, the point is, is, well, all these things exist to, you're, you're, you, you engage in all these things to try and get away from suffering. And that's not bad, mm-hmm. but it's just that if you understand that suffering is inevitable and you actually can't get away from it, you'll stop exerting um, all this additional energy to try and cease it. Because, or otherwise, you'll go through your whole life in this frantic activity of trying to get it to stop hurting when it's actually not possible. It's like, well, you could just calm down a little bit and then it wouldn't be so big of a deal and you could invest that energy elsewhere, maybe. I always think what you said on my podcast, it was like last year, we were talking about how if you think the world is an inherently uh, bad place and you're paranoid, it will become that for you. And if you do the opposite, that will become that for you. So you kind of create your own... I think about that all the time, the idea of like, creating your own reality in the sense of if you if you have a lot of fear and everything it's going to manifest everywhere you're going to find it because so many so many times i just if you're looking for something you're going to find it and i i mean that's the whole, even goes back to the whole thing be careful what you wish for sure so, and, and, and certainly and, and yeah and that's i mean that's magic in a nutshell i mean and, and i say this from it's not like you you switch into what i have to remind myself of this every day Mm-hmm. Right. Cause I will constantly, like, you know, I'll constantly go to the dark place and say, I have, you know, it has to be a conscious effort every day to be like, okay. And it's, but it's as simple as, well, what, what am I focusing on right now? Yeah. Like, like, you know, even in this, the room that you're in right now, there's infinite things you could focus on. You can think, you can look at, oh, there's a headline about coronavirus or Trump, or you can look around and say, wow, I've got food in the fridge. Or if you don't have food in the fridge, you can say, like, wow, I have two hands, you know, and if you don't have two hands, you can say, like, I got one hand. I can do a whole lot with that, you know. That's yeah. mood, but optimism yeah. is incredible. Optimism is one of those things where it's like, 
I don't know. I just grown to hate pessimism so much. That's kind of what I mean. Going it's back just to wasted whole, energy. Yeah, the whole eschatology. I cannot. I will never be able to say that eschatology. word. Eschatology. Yeah, yeah. Eschatology. I think Teleolo- that is, teleology is the other fun. Okay. I find that to be like an, really pessimistic. I think that's what I, how I grew out of it. As I realized, man, this is this is a really uh, a negative way to live because you're almost like hoping for a disaster because you can be yeah. I told you I knew it was going to happen I knew it was going to be bad <laughs> I warned you I told you you'd have yeah. to learn how to garden <laughs> like oh, yeah, yeah, totally. that shit man I hate totally. that the shit so much well, I mean, you, you know, anyone who grew up in the '90s probably like, <laughs> yeah, you know, I had that did a little edge work, but um, yeah, no, I mean, but at least for me, it's like I, I pretty much feel the same way, and I think that um, eventually, it's just a, it's just, it's just an, it, the theory becomes invalidated if you, you know, if you live, if you go through multiple decades and you go through multiple cycles of oh my god, the world is ending. It's really traumatic the first time. Like 2008, the economic crashing, I was convinced that that everything was going to be, you know, uh, like back to ghost towns oh, and like yeah. Mad Max, and it didn't happen. So, and there's like you were talking about the refresh rate. There have been so many iterations of oh my god, the world is ending, and then it just doesn't, and everyone forgets that it was ever ending. That it just the theory has been invalidated for me. It's like well, I was wrong. You know, like things are not going to end. But then yeah. as soon as I think that, it's like, lo and behold, freaking global coronavirus, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, the coronavirus thing is truly, uh, it's just it's like a fucking uh, doomsday dr- wet dream in a sense. Wet market, doomsday just wet market, wet dream. It's a wet market, wet dream. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> the thing that really got me off it more than anything was someone said, I read somewhere about how the idea, someone's basically saying how, Ever since humans could speak and talk and write, they have, there has been someone walking around saying, the world is going to end. The world is going to end. Because what that is, is it's essentially a very um, egocentric viewpoint. The idea that we're, we're going to be the last ones. We're the yeah, last people to we're live. We're, yeah. the most, we're the most important ones. You know what? I guess what? I guess we're the last ones on earth. Like that to me is so... It's so fucking gross, the idea of so it's so self-important. And when I realized that was that's how I sounded, I'm like, oh, that's fucking It's because everyone has just been trying to justify one gigantic cocaine yeah. hooker orgy for all of history. Where it's exactly. like, fuck it. Let's just let's just <laughs> like, please give me the reasons. I don't I don't want to have to have cancer so I can enjoy my life. Give me make it be <laughs> where we're all gonna die, not just some of us. And that's what that when I think about that, anytime something where gets pointed out in that sense, it just really makes anytime someone says something that's a doom and gloom, it just seem very much that way where they are like, Oh yeah, we're the, it's, it was, yeah. I was the last one. <laughs> well, that, and people project their own, the fear, their fear of their own death, which will be final to right. everyone else because they're afraid of dying alone, which we're all afraid of. Right. Being so, forgotten. Right. Which we're all, we all will be. It's like, mm-hmm. I always point out to people and say, how many, you know, how many people of importance can you name from the 19th century? Yeah. Right. Like two A of few. Them. Or let's say the 18th century, mm-hmm. right? It's like Robespierre, uh, Diderot. Uh, you know, it's like you know, it's like, but you know, you got kind of got to sit there for a bit. And, yeah, like the best is like Mark Twain. How many people haven't ever read any Mark Twain? And Mark Twain is probably, I truly believe, he was probably an alien life form. 
<laughs> like he showed up when. Isn't uh, there a Star Trek: The Next Generation episode where there's a Mark Twain there is, android yeah. or holodeck uh, creation? I gotta see that. I I remember seeing that a long time ago, but I was like, probably a little kid when I saw it. But yeah, I think there is a Mark Twain reference because he he was born when Haley's Comet arrived. He was born mm. and died on the day that Haley's Comet was there. So that's just too coincidental, right? To be like one of the most to affect the history of the world completely, one person to have changed everything. Did he? I'm, I what think so. Like, like literally, he changed. He threw some quips out there. But he changed the way people wrote. Had some good like singers. He, he kind of invented like a new way of of new form of journalism. He kind of some say he invented stand up comedy. Hmm. There's all these things. He, that he, that's interesting. I think mm-hmm. well, he think he was the first touring writer. Possibly yeah, he did for Oscar Wilde. Uh-huh. But he, I think, from this is interesting. So I think basically the modern concept of the celebrity was essentially invented by Mark Twain, Oscar Wilde, and um, Sarah Bernhard, the famous really? theater actress. It didn't yeah. exist before that. And then there was um, like Rudy Valentino invented the whole screen idol thing later. But it was created by a few people. There, there was no, and it, it's obvious, it was totally a, a, an effect of. Uh, mass publishing you know really it's technology yeah. that, that creates these things and now it's no longer relevant like i always pointed out it's like there will never be another beatles and there will never be another david bowie because nobody is all nobody listens to the same nobody has the same channel that they're all watching anymore yeah you know, that's just done distribution man. is to uh, you know whatever you call that you know uh, specific diffuse. yeah yeah but um mark twain is an alien Maybe maybe we all are. Maybe we're all in a holodeck. Or what I, if we're all in the Matrix, Johnny? We could be there. I mean, I, or we could we could <laughs> not be. And he was like an alien intelligence that was sent to sort of uh, as an experiment to see if he can change the course of history. That could be it. Like I think maybe there's someone else I thought that about. Maybe I can't think what or who it was. There's a lot of people you can make that argument about, I think. Yeah. Uh, and I definitely thought the same thing. And I've all, always wondered if there's different factions of aliens sending different people. So, it makes sense. I mean, how else would you send something? It would be the best way to send something is in human form. And they yeah. bring some sort of intelligence that wasn't there before. They basically like slip it into the... the it's like that thing where for... You know that writer uh, who wrote the Brain Dead Megaphone? What's his name? He's like a New York Times mm-hmm. guy. God, he's great. The fact they can't think of his name is not very. Uh, uh, it's the guy who wrote Pastoralia, isn't it? Um, and no, it's not. That's, that's is it George Saunders? George Saunders, I think. He may be better read than me. Okay. In the areas well, here. I don't know. I haven't been reading much stuff in a long time, actually. But uh, George Saunders, I think he wrote the Brain Dead Megaphone. This was probably before. This is pre-Trump. He was kind of talking about cable news, but he basically says how. One essay in the book was how if you, you have a uh, a party, right, and there's one person at the party who has a megaphone, and they keep saying, let's just say, they keep saying chocolate ice cream through the megaphone, right? mm-hmm. chocolate ice cream, chocolate ice cream. Eventually, everyone at the party is going to talk, start talking about chocolate ice cream because they can't not hear this yeah, megaphone. Yeah. I mean, that's basic marketing, right? And, and, right. and uh, was it Garibalds or somebody said the same thing? So you just repeat oh, yeah. the same thing enough and people believe it. Right, people believe it, and you know they don't—they don't have to even believe it. They will just start talking about it because they can't talk over Their it. Their brain has to react to it. And it's yeah. the same with CNN and Trump, right? It's exactly. Like Trump, 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 Trump. Oh well, I guess Trump is going to be president for eighty thousand years now. You know, right? Like, so, and, they, and they, this is—that's magic in a nutshell, which is you know you you create what you speak. Mm-hmm. 
Right, so maybe right. maybe Mark Twain was a form of that, where it's like, if he gets these ideas out, because he also had all these ideas about... That or you mean just uh, seeding certain ideas into yeah. the, the environment? Like, yeah. Like in terms of race, he was one of the first people to, um, like, I don't can't think exactly what it was, but he was, and when racism was rampant, you had like the Civil War, he had slavery and all that stuff, he was saying stuff that no one else was saying. Uh, but well before anyone was saying it. Hmm. He also invented fingerprinting technology. He well, he didn't invent it, but he made reference to it in Put in Hen Wilson, which is his second book. He publicized book. it. Publicized it before. It was it probably wasn't used. Wow. I don't think it was used by Scotland Yard until like 50 years later. Wow. So some crazy thing where it's like, what the fuck, man? Well, Arthur Conan Doyle probably invented the whole modern idea of the detective and you know, oh, yeah. the police and how we think of the police and all of this, you know, or, or, which was a new thing, which is fascinating. And yeah, I think there's a lot of people you can make that alien argument about. Mm-hmm. Um, ones that I, uh, Bucky Fuller is an obvious one. Oh, totally, yeah. Um, the guy who invented, I the... I don't know what his name is, but whoever invented fractional reserve banking in the Middle oh. Ages completely changed everything. Right. Uh, whoever, whoever Satoshi Nakamoto actually was, the guy who created Bitcoin, right? Uh, who uh-huh. else? Um, uh, Tesla is the uber obvious example. Yeah. Um, uh, there's so many. And, and yeah, they, uh, these people often have this kind of Twin Peaksy vibe to them or Man Who Fell, uh, not Man Who Fell to Earth, but Day the Earth Stood Still vibe where they kind of seem a little bit too like innocent and chipper and not like, you know, kind of like too, a little naive around the edges, you know, if you know what I mean. And who else? Um, it's probably because they have to lie no. about knowing everything. <laughs> not knowing like, everything they have to pretend like they don't have like they're not holding aces <laughs> right or then it's even like it's like like david bowie like what the fuck yeah what the fuck like you know or or even you know like you can do dark side examples like what the fuck is adolf hitler that come uh-huh. from not a know? very special guy but uh but did a lot of yeah there's a there's a famous um orson wells met hitler in during the when he was um, well, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, and and he there's there's a video interview with him from the '70s on YouTube about meeting Hitler, and he said he's the most boring guy I'd ever met. Like he was utterly boring. He just sat there, like just staring into the distance, and he was like a complete non-entity. God. And I was like, and I was thinking about that. I was like, yeah, of course, because he was he's basically a channel. It's like a clear channel for something. Now, what he's channeling, that's an open question. You know, some malevolent force, Germany in general. I don't know. But it's like, yeah, these are, you know, there are these people in history who essentially are there just to serve a function. And it's not, maybe they don't even have, and and Orson Welles' comment was like, yeah, it's like he had no inner world. He had no interests of his own. And it's like, well, yeah, he's basically an NPC, you know, like he's there. It's like in a video game where there's like a character who's there just to fulfill an NPC role. NPC, man. He's a plot element. (laughs) NPC is my favorite new pejorative term for people. I mean, well, yeah, I mean, I mean, NBC in the original sense of like. Well, I, I, I mean, game, me yeah, too. Yeah. Well, th- think about calling someone an NPC now. How like how how damning that is. It was pretty funny at first, but then it became you know it's just been been done to death. So really, I haven't heard it ever. The NPC meme. No, I really haven't. Honestly, I just keep thinking about. Oh, like, this is a, in the Trump world. People like uh, right wing people call. Um, basically, they refer to people with Trump derangement syndrome as NPCs. And they have this meme of like they look like indescript. They look like emotionless, faceless robots with a gray face, and they're just saying "orange man bad, orange man bad, orange I mean, man bad." That's true, right? Isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was. It, I think a you know a funny observation. Uh, that's the problem, right? That's a big problem right now is how 
how uh, correct some of that right wing shit is, even though it's you know what I mean. It's like it's like you're both wrong. <laughs> you're both right. wrong. You're both right. Well, you have to. It's like nobody knows you better than your enemy. You know, and uh-huh. it's true of anybody. It's like the best, the best, the best friend anybody will ever have. Often is the one who viciously critiques them. Because they'll say what everyone else is not going to say because they like you and they don't want to alienate you, right? Or yeah. they feel that they can get something from you or they want to maintain some type of social cohesion from you, with you. The person that just like fucking hates your guts will tell you the truth, mm-hmm. right? Because they'll say like whatever the most, you know, whatever the most like hurtful thing they can say about your character. And that can be very useful. It's like, wow, like that's true. You know, like people have said things to me, it's like, you know, you take everything as an attack. <laughs> like, wait, yeah, I do actually. Shit. You know, it's like, you know, so so there can be moments of truth in like this total confrontation. You know, it's like somebody who's your friend will, will never tell you the truth. You know, they'll say what will make you feel good and maintain the friendship, which is great. Right. But, you know, your friends are not going to like ruthlessly attack your character flaws. Only enemies can do that. <laughs> yeah. And, and all usually friends don't think about that either, you know, because yeah, wanna, I'm not, you're not even thinking about. Uh, oh, I, yeah, I never, never, never noticed that because that wasn't something I was thinking about. With you. you remember that movie Ed Wood from the the nineties? Oh hell yeah, I love that movie. There's a great line in the end where, like, somebody I forget what it is. Somebody says to Johnny Depp in it, or Ed Wood in it, where it's like, you know, like, wow, it's like you really have like a lot of weird friends. And he he says something like, yeah, like if I didn't, you know, if I didn't. Um, overlook people's negative side or if i didn't overlook like people's weaknesses i wouldn't have any friends this is like totally he, he says it more elegantly in the movie right. but it's basically like you know like if i judge people like i wouldn't have any friends and it's just like yeah it's such a simple thing or it's like yeah we over we overlook we overlook people's foibles and that's a very human and, and good thing but your enemy can tell you some shit that you probably need to hear <laughs> Yeah, I think that a lot of times now I just end up, um, I end up enjoying like good and bad, just like watching the stuff that's bad and being, wow, that's funny that that person is this terrible. Like it's, it just seems funny to me, a lot of stuff that's like, it's supposed to be people like, wow, that's so, can you believe that person said that or did that? And I feel like, oh, yeah, it's pretty funny that they said that. Yeah. Like how funny is it that this this bad thing happened? Or this bad, this bad thing was said. <laughs> the, 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 what was that called? Schadenfreude. I think. I guess it is, isn't it? But I don't, You're, I mean, it's it, it, enjoying other people suffering <laughs> and finding it. I think there's an extra level to it, though, where it's like it's, it was like watching somebody get their just comeuppance and kind of okay, being like, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like that feels good. <laughs> I, I guess it's, for me, it's more like I'm laughing at the how it's like, oh, of course that happened. Like how funny it is that this bad thing happened. Like, of, why wouldn't it happen? Like, that's why I think it's funny when something something terrible. Not, I mean, within within reason, obviously. But there's a lot of stuff where, especially like politically or stuff that's not like uh, death related, where it's kind of funny when bad things happen because it just seems so so ironically right. appropriate. Totally right. I think Trump is the perfect example. Trump is the perfect example. It's like if you take Trump and you you, you, you just extricate him from the the media narrative and you look at him and it's like, how could you get? Well, I'll answer this rhetorical question, but the question is, could you get a more perfect representation of what America actually is? 
than Donald Trump. It's like he is the perfect like avatar of America. Yeah. And the answer is yes, you can. And the answer is dog the bounty hunter. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but other than is, that, it's like... <laughs> he is, Trump is hilarious in that sense. He's absolutely hilarious. That, I get, you know, that's the stuff I mainly find super funny. It's just that yeah. I can't believe... It's almost like uh, watching Tom and Jerry or something, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Roadrunner yeah. and Coyote. It's dangerous in a way where it's like politics become becomes reduced to this you know, WWF type spectacle. Well, well, in fact, it actually is happening and actually does have tremendous impact on your life. It's reduced to theater. Uh, but, but, um, I kind of think the opposite though. I kind of think it doesn't have that much impact in your life. That's my thing. I don't like to say out loud too much because it pisses people <laughs> off. Like, I'll say it to you. Yeah, here, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if I said that people to someone addicted. else, they're addicted to if I were to say out loud, like on Twitter, like, you know what? Honestly, it doesn't matter who the president is. People are like, what are you oh, fucking Lord. mean? And I honestly, I'm like, I, don't, did, I did really don't think it doesn't. Yeah, you, you've dealt with brigades a few times before. If I remember. What's that? Uh, like social media attack brigades. Actually, not really, no. I don't, I don't okay, say a lot okay. of crazy shit. I really don't. Because okay. also, if you're like an actor, you kind of can't. And I get that. I like being an actor. I don't want to jeopardize that by by publishing opinions that are really, I mean, it's not like I'm, I'm not saying anything's bad. I'm more just saying how you're all going crazy because you're, you're making a mountain out of a molehill. Why don't you like learn how to do something cool instead of worrying about something that technically probably doesn't really affect you as much as you think it does. It only right. affects well, you is... because you think it affects you. It doesn't actually affect you. Well, this is kind of like affects us. Right, right. Yeah, it, it, this is kind of like, but this is kind of like the classic, this is like the job of the artist in society, right? Particularly in the performing arts or in comedy, right? Where it's basically like, at least the way that I observe it is the job of the artist is basically to kind of like, you know, the, well, you look at the, you know, Western civilization largely is based, you know, it, a lot of, a lot, there's a lot of programs inherited from the medieval era. And you look at the medieval era, it's like the fool in the king's court is the one who is the only one who is allowed to make fun of people. Yeah. Right. But that's a really important role. And it's actually, as, you know, Shakespeare observed many times, the actually the most powerful position in the entire feudal structure, more than the king, right? Which is like, like a point of dramatic, uh, you know, has, has been used for so many, so much dramatic effect. Uh, but, mm -hmm. Where it's a, but it's a critically important role. It's like the role of the artist is to kind of like, you know, stand back a bit and be like, you know, really though, like, like recontextualize things, you know, um, help process things, put things in a new context where it's like, really, you guys are all bugging out. And, you know, it's the same in any, it's not just a medieval European, it's also a Native American culture. It's anywhere where it's like you always have the artist or, or the clown in many cases who just kind of like, you know, essentially pulls a face and, and, you know, does an impression of everyone and just kind of makes fun of everyone. It's like, you guys are like at it, you, you know, you're taking things a little too seriously. So oh, that people yeah. can see themselves and release that tension through laughter and be like, okay, actually mm -hmm. there is a greater context, you know? So, which is the same as what, you know, shamans and magicians do, but we're a little more devious in that we tend to recraft <laughs> things into new, new realities that we wish rather than simply uh, mirroring back the existing one. But it's essentially the same thing. That's why you get in the tarot deck, the first card's the fool and the second is the magician. And the fool represents okay. total... Um, the fool is jumping off a cliff with a little white dog. And it's just like the, the attitude of the fool is just like, fuck it, everything's fine. 
you know, like whatever, like we're just going to flow with this. It's the total mystic attitude where the magician represents the, the, is a, the fool represents total surrender and the, uh, and just like, it's kind of like, it's like the classic, uh, Shakespearean thing as well. It's just like, it's the co- life is a comedy. It's like a comedy of errors. It's like, it's just hilarious. Let's just enjoy it. Whereas the magician is the exact opposite where the magician is total control. The magician's standing there with the, uh, at an altar with magical implements. And it's like the molecular scientist or, you know, it's like it represents trying to have exercise absolute control over reality. And they're diametrically opposed. First, the first card is zero. The second is one. So it obviously is there's binary code, right? In those two approaches. Mm-hmm. But those are the two, those are the two basic approaches to reality is to try to totally control it or totally surrender. Uh, but the fool approach, the surrender is, is the purest one because it's just like, look, what do we really know? Nothing. What, what, you know, we're here, we're apparently alive and we're going to be dead at some point. And can we control it? No. It's like the, the fool perspective is like, it, it's like to laugh at the idea you can control anything. Like, ha. Huh. Like, good luck with that. It's absurd. I've never heard of that stuff before. I love that. Because now, now I'm like, oh, yeah, I am a fucking fool. <laughs> I like being a fool. Oh, no, I'm not saying. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I love it. I, everything you just said. But it's the role, it's the role, you, it, the role of, performing, of performing arts in general, you know, in the purest mm-hmm. sense, in the purest sense that that's what comedy is. Uh-huh. Yeah, so. there's something, uh, uh, this great clown, Phil Berger's, he also goes by Dr. Brown. He, I had him on the podcast years ago, and he t- told me, he studied clowning at like you know this that prestigious place in in Paris, and he said that um, okay. with Lindsay Kemp or he's uh, English. Philip Ecollier or something like that. I can't remember exactly. It's, he's a famous old French clown. He's he's very old at this point. Okay. Uh, and I think it's Goyer. That's it, Goyer. Okay, he's still alive. Uh huh. Wow. Okay. And um, basically, I mean, he said that the clown lives in the kingdom of the bad, so the clown is always. <laughs> making mistakes and the clown is the clown is like you know the one who falls down and and lands in the puddle of mud before the businessman the businessman laughs at the clown because the the clown lives the clown constantly lives in mistake and they're doing the, the worst thing the clown's doing instead of doing the right thing the clown does the wrong thing so you can let you laugh at the clown doing like Oh, he keeps falling in the same thing. He's he lives in the kingdom of the bad. I think about that all the time in terms of like it's such a uh, like real metaphysical idea. Really, if you think about it, the idea that that this person who's funny is the person who just they're constantly they're just they're just living in shit. But they're the only one who's able to po- actually point out the truth. Right, because yeah. it's like it, the, the the truth is that we're all like that. Like literally, all humans are just kind of like one mistake after the next. It's so it's like we're all that, uh, but we take ourselves that. seriously and we think we're in control, and that's the funny shit, right? That's the, right. the clown is the only one who can point to the truth. Where it's like you guys are fucking, you know, absurd. Or it's that whole yeah. thing with the with the military idea, like what they do, like in special forces and stuff, where the you know the idea of embracing the suck. <laughs> it's this thing okay. that like is this like, like a rum sodomy in the lash type thing it's sort of like uh i experienced it, the first time i ever experienced it in my life was when i was doing this big time backcountry hike with my buddy who's a he's like basically a guide so i wasn't worried about getting dying or anything like that because he knows the area really well but it was probably like upper 80s we were climbing up this like 30 degree slope in yosemite covered in trees it was it sucked man it was fucking was hard. We're trying to get to this campsite, not a campsite, just a place to camp. Like we're off, off trail completely. And it was just so difficult. 
like, you know, I've gone through these branches and stuff. And I think, um, I was just like, Oh, this sucks. This sucks. This sucks. But then I kind of realized, I mean, I was probably also endorphins too, but I had this real moment of like, Oh, this totally sucks, but I'm not going to die. And I had this like rush of euphoria where you're just sort of, instead of pushing against something that feels bad, you're just like, Oh, this feels bad. You kind of embrace how bad it feels. And you basically take that bad uncomfortableness and you just go, yeah, man, you just, you get more of it. You like dig in, you double down on the shit and you just kind of live in the shit. You embrace the suck. That's all these like Marines will do is when they're on the fucking shit, man, they just, it's like, you just eat it. You just eat shit. And you love it because you're eating shit the hardest. Or if you have to carry something super heavy, it's like, doesn't that suck? It's like, fuck yeah, it sucks. It sucks so bad that it's like you can you can love it because it just fucking sucks. Yeah. It no, feels it's totally good. True. I mean, that's, being, that's Buddhism also, you know? Yeah, you lean into it. But, the, the, but in that moment, it's so shit. important. I mean, this is really one of the keys to life, I think. But in that moment, the, the important part of that moment is you realize that you actually, no matter what's happening, it's like you, you have control over your own perception of it. It's like you can change your own perception, even in a small way, change your perceptual reaction to it. And if you just shift it from like, wow, this is this really sucks and that's bad to wow, this really sucks. And uh, yeah, like I'm really enjoying this, you know, I'm leading. It's like it. funny. It's like, I was laughing. It's like, oh my God, this is so bad. It's like that thing, you know, when everything fucking sucks in a movie, like the car broke down, all this stuff happened and all of a sudden it starts raining. And then like you start laughing because it's like, oh, wow, right. everything's bad. It couldn't get any worse. And now it's fucking raining. It's right, that right, kind of right. thing where it's just it's delicious. A, it's deliciously like the bad. Classic role that, like the classic theatrical role, theatrical role of comedy. It's like you layer it on so much. Where uh -huh. It's like, yeah, you broke down at next to like a haunted house and like, you know, and, and all this stuff. And now, uh, uh, you know... It's just one one catastrophe of the comedy of errors, one catastrophe after the next, yeah. until you can you, until you have to give up and just be like, all right, this is fucking absurd. And but that's yep. you know that's the key right there because otherwise the because otherwise what happens is you take it too seriously and then you break because you're putting up all this resistance to what's happening. Yeah, and then and then two things hit and something has to break. And when there's a confrontation between an inflexible universe and an inflexible individual, which uh -huh. one do you think breaks first, right? Probably Rather than yeah. just flowing with it, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so there's a great, there was a Buddhist writer in the 50s, uh, Irish, he was Irish playwright named Terence something. Uh, but he wrote his Wei Wu Wei. And he wrote, he had a, there's a clip, one of his book, Ask the Awakened, which is a series of, of uh, sections, a series of um, small poems. Uh, or, or stanzas where he has one called the Harlequinade, where he talks about. He basically says, like, why, why do you suffer? It's because you know, ninety nine point nine seven percent of what you do is for yourself, and there is no you, and it doesn't exist. There is no self. And the, and the, in the next passage, he says, you know, life is. Human beings are basically like clowns. And he talks about. I think a famous French clown, uh, you know, kind of like going about. You know, if we were to look at our lives from outside, it's like we're clowns going around bumping into things, tripping over things, breaking a foot, uh, you know, hair lights on fire, just constantly making a mess of everything. <laughs> but we're constantly reacting as if we're the ones doing it. And the reason that it's funny 
is because we we think that we're in control, right? We're not, right? Whereas if you were just to be like, wow, this is just, you know, this is this is fucked up. <laughs> like, I don't know. But it's 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 like it's the when we trump ourselves up, no pun intended, to mm-hmm. be like, I'm a big deal. I'm in control. I have like, you know, I'm fixing this. Well, that's that's important up to an extent, but you also I mean, and it is important, but you also have to recognize that it's like up to a certain point, you have to you, you you have to relinquish and trust and have faith, right? That's something you know in a greater process. Because to think that you're and you can we can spot somebody like this on the street a mile away. Oh yeah, you know somebody yelling into their phone, "How could you do this to me?" You know, like that type of shit. It's just like, mm-hmm. dude, like you know, that's the the opposite. It's just this illusion that you can control, exercise force to control what's around you. Yeah. I mean, a point. I think that's why I like gardening so much is it's sort of this weird illusion of control when actually, you know, you kind of just have to wait and see. <laughs> but can we, why don't we, uh, we should end on, can you offer some, I wanted to actually spend more time talking about this. Can you offer right? people some tips on starting home gardens, particularly right now to grow vegetables and things like that? Well, that seems very, very practical. And I would like that, those tips, because I would like to do that. Um, the best tip I ever heard was grow what you want to eat. Um, that way you care about it. But I think the other thing too is also to try to grow something that you don't care about, because then it's the thing where you get to see how, how much better the thing you don't care about grows than the thing you want to grow. Um, the biggest why, tip, why is that? Just because you're not doting on it. Like if you dote mm. on something, it's just that it's almost like a watch pot doesn't boil sort of thing. But also just things that are that are like too, too fussed over. They don't like they just don't, plants don't like being fussed over. They just want to succeed on their own terms. Like some of the things I have that grow the best are stuff that's like, well, I haven't done anything to this. It just loves loves growing. Loves where it is. Um, but my my favorite tip that I always tell people is that um, if you're growing in containers, always get a container that's twice the size you think it needs to be. Because people always grow fucking these things like these like six-inch shallow little pots. I'm like, you can't grow anything in that. But you've got this cilantro in full sun, and it's drying up in three minutes. So you have to have... I always like growing stuff in really, really deep pots. Or if you have a garden bed, anything that's really deep. Because that way... You don't have to water it as much and the roots can go down a lot. And anytime you can let the roots, um, I mean, I always water, water less than more is the thing, but I don't know. There's so, there's the thing with gardening is there's no like real tip. All it is to me is troubleshooting. And I think a lot of times we have to do is you have to think about what the plant wants, which kind of implies a lot of like weird cross species empathy which is why I'm not a vegan because I think that veganism is essentially like a a, a, a homocentric viewpoint. <laughs> the idea, okay. You know, you know what I mean. Uh, but like if you can plant plants are people too. Yeah, I say. I mean, they're they're a life form. They mm. just happen to be a life form that doesn't have a face, so we don't feel as bad about <laughs> stealing their children, eating them, and killing them. <laughs> but um, the idea that you uh, uh, if you, if you're growing something, let's say you're growing tomatoes, right? Uh, tomatoes do really well. Think about where tomatoes came from. And you want to simulate the environment of where they are originating from. So if you think about that sort of stuff, it doesn't make sense to grow certain plants in certain environments. And also other environments, it makes tons of sense to grow certain things. So if you just kind of think about like, like if you like Italian food and you're going to want to grow eggplants and basil and tomatoes, you kind of think like, okay, so if those are all Italian foods, what's the weather like in Italy? 
I tell you what it's a lot like. Mm. It's a lot like Southern California. So it's a great place to grow Italian um, ah. Italian things. Anything like that. Anything Mediterranean grows like crazy. Oh, wow. Good okay. Okay. Well, that's great. So there's that um, kind of stuff. I think about that stuff a lot. I also just think about, you know, um, the power of the sun, especially where your climate is, is a really big deal. Like in Southern California, people put like tomatoes in the full sun. They're not meant to be in the full sun, not unless you want to water them all the goddamn time. They don't, stuff doesn't need as much sun as you think it does. And also vice versa. So it's kind of like, um, I don't know. There's just so many, so much contradictory information out there. But really, I think a lot of it is just trial and error and kind of really, really letting plants have. The best thing that someone told me once was uh, just to give certain vegetables a lot of space. Like you want to give them a lot of space and they can get so big. These, like you can get tomato plants that you can give them like fucking two feet circumference, uh, two feet diameter around them. And it seems like a lot, but they will fucking they will take up the space. Wow. They'll do better for it because they're not being crowded. Wow. That, okay, so one thing... That, okay, this is super great. So one thing I've never been clear on, and I probably mm. just haven't put the research in, is if, um, if, if I live in a... And if somebody lives in an apartment, or like, for instance, right now, I'm in a condo, but I have... Uh, or it's an Airbnb, but I have uh, a backyard, mm -hmm. but it's just a... It's concrete. There's no, nothing I can't plant in a yard. So if you're in that type of situation and I don't have like access to like, whenever I think about this, I think about like, oh, like people have like community co-op gardens and stuff. Yeah. Like when I lived in Park Slope, but that's not happening here. So um, do you, at that point, what do you, you know, what do you, do you get like one, like a planter? Do you get like a, yeah. a wood box? You get a big wood planter. What's the, what's the way to go? It, the bigger the better is always the, the best because that allows you to have the most uh, soil in there. So it allows the plants just to, just to, I mean, plants like a lot of space. It's just, the deeper the roots can go, the better they can grow. Can you and, have them inside? Uh, like a big uh, box? Planter? No, because you don't get enough light unless you want to have like, okay. you know, have like a grow up, like a, like a, like weed or something like that, <laughs> which you could do. I mean, people you, do, you can do that with tomatoes, right? You can. I mean, that's the thing. All these weed growers, man, they're all so fucking good at growing weed. And you can apply everything that they do to vegetables because they're, I mean, that's the thing about like Michael Pollan said years ago is that the most advanced botanists in the world are growing an illegal plant. Uh, and like they, those people who grow weed are fucking geniuses, man. The shit they do, the shit that they work so hard. Financially motivated to do it. Yeah. And they make stuff that's just, if you put even half that amount of work into your eggplant, <laughs> God. You have just crazy yields and stuff. They just put wow. some, they're so smart. Some of these scientists, these botanists are just, I mean, they're manipulating the plant to the extent, it's just unbelievable amount of manipulation. And uh, you don't even have to do that much to get good yields on a lot of plants. You just let them do what they want to do. As long as, if you plant stuff at the right, that's the biggest tip. If you plant stuff at the right time, then you don't have to do hardly anything. Okay. What have you had most success with growing uh, in Southern California? I mean, I've had a lot of success with, with uh, English peas, like Pisum sativum. I love growing peas. And that's been not in the middle of the summer, even though I'm growing them right now. But I think it's going to cool off quite a bit, I hope. Usually it does. So they'll be able to get pretty big by, by June or July. And um, I've had a lot of success with that. A lot of success with okra. Okay. Again, that's something that typically grows in a more human environment, but I think they can. You can make them do well. Um, 
It's good for Indian food. Yeah, uh, just good. I love them. This is great. Yeah. It's a great vegetable. That, uh, I like okra. My dad hates okra because he grew up having to eat it in Kansas, but I love it. Yeah. Particularly when you get the freeze-dried okra at Trader Joe's, those are good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, and what what would be good to start planning now-ish? God, this, this. This I, mean, is, I don't know where people are going to be in the world yeah, as this, but I'm that's in the, else, so. That's the thing, though, man. It's all about where you live. And also, stuff changes a lot. You can get like microclimates. I'm starting right now. You can start like a lot of, uh, God, you can start any kind of like um, uh, nightshades, eggplant, okay. tomato. Okay. You can start basil. You can start anything that needs mm-hmm. the ground to be warming, start now. Um, you can kind of do anything right now, I think. You can start pumpkins, start melons right now. Okay. And have other like ones, like beginner crops you recommend people starting with, like that are, you know, just to learn? I feel like... Does it matter too much? I don't really know, man. I mean, that's tough. I, I, I'm always bad at that because I always say that, you know, you just if you grow up with what you want to eat, I, I don't know. I mean, in my mind, everything is easy. But okay. it's also hard. I, I don't know. I think that um, I guess another maybe a better question would be: Are there good books it. or in, are there good books or informational ref, uh, 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 references for learning that you recommend? Pretty much just YouTube, uh, SF Gate. They have a lot of good advice on if you Google something and an SF Gate article comes up, that's good. Okay. Um, but the thing to grow radishes. If you want to just ah, okay. radishes are the easiest thing to grow, and you have to watch them develop really fast. If you want to just throw a bunch of radish seed in the soil, you will have radishes. They will grow despite your your best efforts to kill them. Radishes life, are yeah. Life finds a way. Life uh, finds a way. Yeah, man. Radishes. <laughs> All right. That that maybe that's a good place to to to, to bookmark it. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna I think I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna try this out. I've been meaning to for like 20 years. Just and, do it. Uh, Grow a bunch yeah, of this radishes, is a great time. Man. This is a great time. I'm gonna, I'm gonna check this out. I'm gonna watch. I'm gonna sit there and watch, watch grass grow, watch yes. radishes, radishes grow, uh, instead of playing Call of Duty '83. <laughs> which I, I beat four Call of Duty games during. Yeah, so. that's crazy. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, that was awesome. We should definitely do a hike at some point too when uh, the, the social distancing is less severe. I'm down for sure. Awesome. All right, man. Uh, yeah, that was good. Bye, Jason. Bye, Jonathan Pemberton. Bye bye. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye. All right. Hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Definitely check out magic.me and make sure that you come to office hours after you subscribe because we are going to have a lot of fun there and stay tuned for announcements at magic.me coming up very shortly if you're already a magic.me subscriber uh, and you're already subscribed to this podcast tell a friend about it Uh, i you know tell a friend about the podcast they can subscribe at itunes stitcher spotify or wherever you get podcasts Uh, but tell a friend about the podcast Um, you know, we're going to be doing these much, much more frequently, and I'm going to do everything I can to really share information that's helpful. I don't want to just entertain you. I hope I'm entertaining. I'm probably not that entertaining, but more than entertaining, I really want to share information that's helpful because there's not a whole lot of time for anything else right now. Um, I want to share information that assists people stay spiritually healthy, 
economically healthy, psychologically healthy, and not just healthy because that implies that there's a problem, but to thrive, to be superhuman even. Why bother with anything else, right? We're here, we're incarnate, we are enjoying this existence to uh, forgive me for the Reddit, the Reddit tier statement here, but to be awesome, right? We are here to be awesome. And just because there's a pandemic doesn't mean that that's any different. In fact, it's a great opportunity to excel um, when everyone else is afraid and shut down like deer in the headlights. That's the best time to do, to, to strike while the, you know, strike while, while the iron is hot, to mix metaphors here. This can be a great time for you, and it's my uh, job to bring you as much information as I possibly can to facilitate that. Because here at magic.me, your success is our success. All right, lots of love. I will see you in office hours. I will see you in the next podcast, and I will see you in the next big magic.me announcement. All right, stay safe out there. Lots of love. Talk to you soon.